Rude is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Kanyankahaga people, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hi, I'm Daniela. I'm a public health researcher and anti-racism slash LGBTQ activist from Vancouver. And I'm Michael. I'm working on anti-oppressive school reform. And this is Rude, a podcast where we push back. <laughs> Nico! No. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> that's one of our writers, Nico. Hey, Nico. <laughs> so, Daniela, what are we pushing back against today? We're talking about labels today. We're talking about what it means to have a label applied to you, to have one that you adopt yourself, and also what it means to reclaim labels that may once have been hurtful. Mm. And in the process, pushing back against a whole number of different systems. Mm-hmm. We're joined today by our co-host. Hi, I'm Barbara Caruana. I'm a feminist filmmaker from Nairobi, Kenya. And Emily Nicola. Hi, I'm an anthropologist and an activist from Montreal. Emily's going to be popping in to give some background when necessary. And our special guest is Kamala Macro. Kamala is an artist from Montreal who began the first poetry group for young queer people of color in the city. Should be exciting. Are you excited? Stoked. <laughs> that is not what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> Me neither. I was going to say so excited, and then it just came out. And so, this is Rude. Okay, so... That's the transition music. I remember the first time that I ever heard anything that related to feminism. My grandmother told me the story about a friend of hers who had worked as a school teacher in Nairobi for many, many, many years. And she was married to this man who was really, really wealthy. He was an engineer and um, he'd done very well for himself. And, you know, as marriages do, it kind of broke down. But because they are a good African family, they didn't split up. And... uh, I wouldn't even say they stayed together because of the kids, because their kids were grown. But, you know, they just chose to stay together. But the thing about this story that hurt me the most was the when my grandmother told me how after things had gone south, he completely took control of her life because he wouldn't give her money. And in that moment, she wanted to teach me something. She basically was saying, get your shit. Have your own money. Don't let anybody control you, least of all men. And I think that was the very first time that she was trying to communicate to me what it means to be a woman who has her own. And I know that she didn't use the word feminist because she didn't possibly have it in her vocabulary. But I think of that moment often and I remember how much it's shaped who I've become. Now, fast forward to a couple of years later when I've learned the word feminist and I appreciate it and I love it because of everything that it represents. And somebody says it back to me for the first time with a look on their face that suggests that it's a dirty, dirty thing to be. And I'm so confused and kind of hurt, actually, because nobody wants to be this dirty thing. And it's taken me many, many years to reconcile with that, to be okay with loving this idea, which is feminism, and knowing that I'm going to walk into certain spaces in Nairobi and people will look at me a certain way because I've decided to be a feminist. What hurts even more, actually, I think, um, about the whole thing is when my female friends uh, make fun of me for claiming to be a feminist. And it hurts so much because I'd, I don't know how to, how to explain to them, me being a feminist is for you. 
is so that you can have a better life. It's so that you can have equal pay and you can have equal opportunity. But I guess that's that's everything that feminism is trying to fight. The ideas that we as women have agreed to or have been socialized with that we are less, we deserve less, we shouldn't take up as much space. But I wear it proudly because I know that it matters, it means something. And when I meet somebody else and they say to me that they're a feminist too, I love it because I instantly am connected to them. Danielle, what stood out for you about that? What stood out for me in hearing that was how frustrating it is sometimes when women behave in ways that are categorically feminist but refuse to identify with that label or that term because of the baggage it comes with in the society we live in, where being a feminist is also here often seen as something negative. I can understand that when it's attached to a political analysis of how feminism has become so whitewashed Mm. and people prefer sometimes to use words like womanist or intersectional feminist to reflect in the label their political analysis. Those are labels I hadn't even heard Uh before. Uh Uh-huh. Learning. (laughs) You know what jumped out at me? was the ways in which a woman can adopt the term feminist and live a feminist lifestyle and be ostracized for it and demonized for it, whereas men will not even do like that much. They'll, they'll do what it should be expected of the average person and be lauded for that effort and be like, award. I, I mean, we, we got this email that you got this email the other day, right? <laughs> Let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. There's a, there's a competition for men who have supported women doing badass things. I got it. In recognition of the fact that men play a key role in advancing women's equality. What? (laughs) (laughs) It also asks for uh, this winner should be nominated by one or more women who have worked with him for blah, 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 who provide a short testimonial of how his support has been key to their success. There's labor involved, free labor. Damn. As if women don't do enough free labor. Yikes. Well, I guess I should just put away my awards. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Anyway, you can see that same erasure in the movement for queer rights. The labor of black trans women like Marsha P. Johnson and trans women of color like Sylvia Rivera are so often erased from the story. Indeed. We talked about this and so many other topics relevant to the LGBTQ2 plus community and labels in the next interview with Kamala Mackerel. My name is Kamara Makrel and I'm a Dijage slash Montreal based artist, arts facilitator, educator, uh, and lover. Hey Kama, welcome to Rude. Has there been some pushback that you've experienced where people are uncomfortable with what you say and do because it challenges the way the world works right now? Yeah. Um, 
I'm tempted to say all the time, uh, That's all fair. the time in that sense. I think doing a particular kind of work that allows the emergence of voices that are supposed to be silenced, because really for me, that's the crux of it. Society is structured in particular ways where certain bodies are meant to be visible in very particular ways. Certain voices are meant to be heard in very particular ways and certain bodies are meant not to be seen at all. And when that moment happens where there's an emergence of a voice that's not supposed to be heard, uh, there's an immediate reaction to it. There's always an immediate reaction to it. When, when you've been told that your silence is what is, is valued, that you're supposed to be existing within a structure of silence, and when you decide to vocalize your voice, when you decide to vocalize your truth, there's always a reaction to this. Because for me, that's actually the political moment. That's what I define for me mm-hmm. as the revolutionary moment, just that, that act of, of speaking out. Mm-hmm it challenges the, the power structures. It challenges basically that, that structure that was existing before you spoke. And in that way, yes, there is always, always a reaction. So right now, for example, so I've, I've recently, last summer, I've started running this program called Our Bodies, Our Stories, which is an arts and performance mentorship program for queer and trans youth of color aged 16 to 24. Um, and it's been so interesting running the program in itself because in the end, all we end up talking about, most of what we end up talking about with the youth is the notion of truth and the notion of articulating your voice. It's the theme that comes back every week as I see the youth. We always come back to the notion of how do you speak your truth? How do you even get it out of your body to be able to speak it? And I think one of the things that's interesting about the program is how long it took for this program to even exist. Mm. It, it, just, it still amazes me that a program like this one is existing for the first time in this iteration in Montreal ever. And I know elders, I know people who have been around, who've been trying to start a program like this for at least a decade. If you're trying um, to unfold a program like this one within any form of institutional setting, be it academic or artistic, like there's so much resistance on the one hand, but even in terms of community or the grassroots or community organizations, how every, every step of the way, actually, you need to prove yourself. 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 You know, you constantly, constantly have to justify yourself. And then by the end of it, it takes you a decade and generations of burnout and generations of people who come in and out to be able to come to the realization of a program like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a testament, actually, how how hard it is to even just run a program that wants to center voices of queer and trans youth of color. Yeah. And in combating that challenge, have you found the use of the label queer and trans youth to have been helpful in making this possible? Um, yes, in the sense of... Like, I say cutie BIPOC all the time. So queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color. And I repeat it as many times as I can. Cutie BIPOC, cutie BIPOC, cutie BIPOC, cutie BIPOC, cutie BIPOC. And the idea behind it is also to normalize it. Because there's, I think the question of language becomes very important here. Because, of course, there are, like, so many ways in which language operates. And I think inherently words have value. Words contain meaning, words carry meanings um, in that sense. And within that meaning is power, right? Like what are the words that actually carry power or not? 
uh, and who gets to articulate them. Mm. So under the pretense of a, of a French secularism, the question of race always gets erased. Hi, this is Emily here, and I'm so glad that Karma mentioned what she just did, the history of secularism that exists in Quebec, also known as laïcité. Just like in France, there's been this big pushback historically to divide religion and state. But often people have taken that notion to mean that religion should be erased and invisible in society in general. And so you get to be erased because of your race, and then you get to be erased because of your religion. And those are both struggles that any organizer that I know here have faced, and I'm glad that Kiama had mentioned this as well. It's very interesting for me as well because I'm actually Francophone, and I'm also a migrant living here, but who's primarily Francophone. And a lot of times, when I had just moved here, a lot of times, one of the reactions that I was hearing a lot was that, oh, but you're Francophone, you're fine. It's, always, it's a question of language. You know, it's, a, it's about the Francophones and the Anglophones. It's about Quebec and the rest of Canada. But then when I would try to articulate, yeah, but I'm Francophone. I'm not talking about language right now. I'm talking about the racism that I experience. It gets erased. So like, there's so much of an obsession on language, mm-hmm. that everything else than every other forms of experiences get erased. So it's been very important for me in that sense to be able to use the label, to be able to specifically name race all the time, even within queerness, even within the LGBTQ, to always bring it back to the cutie BIPOC mm-hmm. um, is, is very important to me. So it's, it's, it's very conscious, it's very deliberate. It's a, it's a decision that I make, like I always bring it back to that. Because in doing this, I do hope that, however irritating it might be to the rest of the world, that at least it, there's, a, there's an aspect of normalization to it. Um, a lot of times working with you, for example, I have those moments where some things get named and you, you have what I, I like to call a moment of recognition, you know, where let's say somebody says something about a particular experience and for the first time you hear somebody else articulating something that basically you have experienced but you've never heard it before mm-hmm. and that's why that in that sense that's why I want to I think for me the term cutie BIPOC is so important because it allows for me that maybe you have never thought of yourself as a cutie BIPOC but to be able to say it and to and to normalize it allows the possibility of of recognizing yourself. So within that acronym of Cutie BIPOC, I think we could talk a bit more about the queer in there and how that is a label that is almost an anti-label in a sense because it doesn't identify very much about a person besides their queerness and what that means. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about the word queer, its reclamation from being a derogatory term to something that people quite proudly wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because as, as you said, so the history of the word queer is that queer was that insult, right? That degradatory term that was taken back somewhere in the 90s as from like, the, I think the mid 90s onwards, 
maybe even earlier. And and it's interesting because I remember the first times that I started hearing the word queer, having intergenerational conversations, actually. But at the time I was living in Toronto and meeting like older gay men, for example, who just hated the term, really, because for them it was such a degradatory term. There is something for me personally admirable to the fact that actually queer now, um, 15 years later, like we use the word queer in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, we refer to a queer community in a lot of times we don't even say LGBTQ2S plus, we would say a queer community. And I actually really like that because I do identify as queer, absolutely. And I think it's a term, a term that could be problematized, it, just like any other term could be problematized as well. But for me personally, and that's very personal here, I love that queer is actually, yes, a label, but also an anti-label in the sense of like, it means something, it means nothing. It also means everything. When I say I'm queer, really, like, what do I really mean by this? And I actually love that. It allows you to just exist in multiple spaces without having to define what's my relationship to masculinity, what's my relationship to femininity, what's my relationship to gender, what kind of sexual practices do I have, what kind of desire do I have, and... And all of this for me also is fluid, right? Like for me, our, like our identities are not always pinned down to one location, to one moment. Actually, they change. Like sometimes they change within a day. Sometimes they change within a year. And what I love about the term queer is actually that part for me, because in many ways it allows me to escape scrutiny because I'm like I want to be able to say yes I'm a trans woman but I'm also kind of a gay man I'm also kind of like a gay boy I'm also like I, I kind of want to be all of that right like I, I want to be all of that also um, in western understandings there's a separation between gender and sexuality right in the most basic 101 workshop that you do we say oh sexuality is about who whom you're attracted to and gender is about your gender identity and where do you identify on the um, you know male female spectrum or masculine feminine spectrum uh, which is a legitimate thing I think that's like a legitimate way of understanding gendered and sexual experiences but for me personally I see it as a very western understanding actually and coming coming from Mauritius uh, having lived in India for a while I feel that those lines are way more blurred when I think of my own childhood I was like was I a trans kid but was I also a gay kid was I both together like I'm complex I'm multiple and I feel queerness allows me to exist in in that multiplicity so i do think that the term queer in that sense is valuable but i think that the term queer can and should coexist with the other terms. So it's not like I'm definitely not saying that, you know, all LGBTQ2S people need to identify under the umbrella term of queer. I think the, the separation, the LGBT2SI, everything that follows and the plus, I think is also extremely valuable because those, those are the grounds where the actual struggles happen. Those are the grounds where actual change happen but I think queer as an umbrella term should be exist coexisting with with the rest of the of the letters in that sense because those are also extremely valuable and I think a lot of times 
we end up using queerness as an overall term, uh, which also erases mm -hmm. certain experiences, right? Like, so if you think in the North American context of the LGBT, traditionally speaking, really the movement has been a very L and a very G movement. <laughs> Trans people historically have been erased from the movement, have been pushed out of the movement. And, and there's that sense, particularly in a place like this in Canada, right? Of like, oh, we've achieved it all right now. You know, there is same-sex marriage and there is same-sex divorce and <laughs> you can do all those things. But actually, when you think about trans rights in Canada, when you think about who are the people within that umbrella of queerness or within the list of letters of the LGBTQ2S, I, who, who has been actually pushed out of the movement and whose lives, actually, whose livelihoods are still at stake. Because I also identify as trans and that's very... I mean, that's also personal because I, I do have a transgender experience, but also it's also very political because ultimately when I, when I think of like where my battles lie, like, yes, I identify as queer in my everyday life because it's just easy. You know, I just put queer on a cupid and I don't have to explain anything. <laughs> uh, and that part is easy. But in terms of on the ground, the actual battle right now is about trans rights. And I don't, I absolutely do not want to erase that because otherwise we will Erase. We are already erasing a particular community within that broader queer community. So there is something valuable about it, but in terms of actual social and political change, uh, maybe we need to be, you know, maybe actually sticking to other labels is what allows us to, to, to bring about change. Hmm. Especially when there are added layers of race on top of being trans. You know, a, a conversation that I also have a lot that I think is interesting about the term queer specifically, a lot of times I have conversations with other people of color uh, where we refer to queerness as a way of life but as a white way of life, because that's the other thing too. When we're saying queer, it's about, it. it there's also a queer aesthetics, right? Like there's a, a way of like dressing or a way of presenting yourself to the world that we actually consider queer, but that's also very white. And I think it's, it's important for us to remember in using queerness not to erase actually identities of color, bodies of color, you know, like, uh, cause, because ultimately it's important to remember that history that in North America, it was trans women of color who started the Stonewall riots. Mm -hmm. However, however whitewashed that movement has been up until now, you know, that movie came out a couple, yeah, of, year, a couple of years ago where there was a white man who was like the protagonist in that film. And I think it's important to talk about it because that's also the power of images. Because for a youth who's 14 years old who actually will see the movie for the first time, that youth will, will actually think that this was history, that mm -hmm. he was actually a white man who started the riot, but it wasn't that at all. And the work of Rena Gossett actually was really interesting about this because Rena Gossett is a trans woman of color based in Brooklyn who's been doing a lot of research on Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. And she actually found in, in, in the archives that video, which was, I think, in the early 70s, like I think it was 72 or 73, uh, where Silva Rivera had to fight, like she had actually had to fight her way to be able to get the mic to go on the stage during Pride, you know, like, and that was, that was just like four or five years after the riots mm -hmm. had happened. And I think there's a way in which people of color, specifically trans women of color, have been erased from the movement, have been erased from queerness. I think it's important to be critical of that. Like even, I think it's important, 
however great the term queer is, I think it's important for us to actually be critical of it um, and to think about it in intersectional ways, like to think about how does race actually factor into this? How does class factor into this? How does migration factor into this? How does status in a country factor into this? And I think it's very important uh, for people of color, like I know, I you know, people of color who, who are trying to reconnect with their ancestries, with their spiritualities, and trying to also just even find words to articulate their gender or their ways of living. Like, you know, some people use backlash, some people use hijra, um, and even for, for indigenous communities, communities in Canada mm-hmm. right like the, the thing is I think it's important for us to also remember that within the, the the gender and sexual context that we live in nowadays is very much a colonial context Colonial indeed, and whether it is Bakla in the Philippines or Hijra in South Asia or Two Spirits in North America, all of those identities are valid. Whether it is as well in my own context in the Caribbean and in West Africa, all of those spirits that you can call on when you are not identifying as a woman or as a man. All of those spiritualities and all of those identities existed long before colonization and we need to remember that gender diversity is not a new thing. LGBTQ rights are not a new thing. There's something that humanity has partly forgot because of colonization. All of us here need to not participate in this colonial narrative and present those ideas as new. They are old, and when you are a queer person of color, you are being grounded in your roots, grounded in your culture, and grounded in your identities in whatever forms they might be. The binary itself, the notion that there are only two genders, male and female, was a colonial tool that was used to eradicate communities of color within the colonial process. And and that happened here. That happened with the indigenous communities of Canada. Uh, The two-spirit people were the first people who were actually murdered when the British came to this land because because they were the spiritual leaders of those communities. So in doing this, in amongst the many things that colonization did, the colonial intervention was premised on the binary. And and the system that we live in nowadays, the, 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 the gendered system that we exist in, whether you're thinking about the law, whether you're thinking about medicine, that notion is still very colonial. Uh, It's great to have a new term that's fluid, that that allows possibilities, but it's really important to, to not erase history in that process and not erase the violence that happened for for that term to exist. Absolutely, and the ongoing violence of colonization, for sure. When you were talking about Stonewall, that made me think of the fact that it was actually an anti-police riot. Also, also that yeah, also we 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 never talk about it this way, but it's true. It was what what the problem was really that all those trans women and terms they used at the time, drag queens, transvestites, different terms that existed were actually being harassed by the police. Uh, And I think one of the things that I think about just in terms of trans liberation, generally speaking, is that the trans liberation has always been anti-state because trans bodies have always been pushed to the margins 
of the state and and the multiple ways in which the state actually con- controls power, right? And the police is very much that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that resonates with me around, like you know, discussions that I know happen in Toronto Pride that happen in Montreal Pride around whether the poli- well in Montreal the SPVM the police doesn't want to participate in Pride anyway. So <laughs> I guess that kind of solves the question. But last year there was still a military presence in the parade, even if uh, the local police in Montreal wasn't part of the parade which created that that discussion again yeah and I think it's important to remember that yeah exactly in Vancouver we had very similar conversations around police and pride and there was a very interesting point of contention that you bring up where every participant in the official parade was required to sign the trans equality now pledge that mentioned things about sex workers trans sex workers and equality for trans uh, people And the Vancouver Police Department hadn't signed it, yet they were celebrated in the parade as this wonderful participant. Yeah, this is a podcast, otherwise you would see me cringe right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kama, if you were to be speaking to a younger you, before you were necessarily aware of the intricacies of all of these labels and the way that the world operates today, what might you say to that younger you? I think I would say to that younger me that your voice is valid, that your experience is valid, and that your truth is valid. And the world will try to tear you down and tell you that you're wrong. And independent of the labels that you decide to take, the labels do not matter. Know that your truth is valid, that your voice is valid, and that your experience is valid. Barbara, welcome back. Thank you. You know, I was so taken by Kama's response to the question about what she would say to her younger self, what message she would want her younger self to hear. That I was wondering your thoughts to the same question. What would you t- what would you say to yourself back when you were first adopting the label of feminist that you now have some perspective on? I would say to 20-year-old Barbara, you have this. Own it you know exactly what you're doing. And people are going to try and take that away from you, and you should never let them. Because that label that you've chosen, that armor that you wear, it will serve you and will serve you well. Wow. And there you have it. Own your labels. Know your labels. Be empowered. Love your labels. My name is Michael. I'm Barbara. And I'm Daniela. And this is Rude. We want to thank Nicole, one of our writers and researchers. She's worked in women, peace, and security on the international level. Kara, our producer and head inspirational energy source, who has worked as a social impact consultant. And Amaya, one of our writers and researchers, a human rights lawyer. We have an amazing team compiled to bring you each episode of Rude. Listen in on our next episode for more. Our theme music is called Wildlife Documentaries by Simon Panrucker. The music that appeared during the episode is by Ryan Little. And our outro music is called Balloon Rising by A.A. Aalto. Now don't forget, it's okay to be rude. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>